Amen. You may be seated. Children are dismissed at this time. It's a family affair today. Thank you, Melissa. As the children are being dismissed, you are invited to open up God's Word. John 20, 11 through 18. The story we are considering this morning is the story of Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb. Mary's story was interrupted last week, and we left her with her story unfinished. No one likes an unfinished story. No one likes an unresolved chord progression. Andy and I are always eyeing each other up here during the offering, trying to make sure we get the timing right so that whatever he's playing gets resolved before I get up here uh, to start with the announcements, and he always resolves it. But we crave closure and completion and resolution. A good story needs a good ending. And last week we considered verses 1 through 10 through this theme of story, and one of the main things that I was trying to communicate is that if the story of the resurrection is true, and remember, these are not just stories, these are true stories, the life Death and resurrection of Christ is the most true story. It's the foundational story, the story upon which all other stories, all else depends. And if it's true, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then if you are a Christian, no matter where you find yourself right now, no matter what circumstances, no matter what your story feels like right now, you find yourself in a good story with a good, perfect ending of wonderful resolution. But in the thick of things, in this fallen sin-cursed world, with hearts still warring against remaining sin, we know that that is quite easy to forget. We are quite good at forgetting the good. When things so often so feel so dark, difficult, and discouraging, we are tempted toward despair, toward depression even. I was reading more on this idea of the importance of story, of knowing what kind of story you find yourself in, as you are constantly observing and interpreting and, and talking to yourself, weaving your experiences into a narrative. We are all of us doing this always. And I was reading, and I ran across this line from a lady who's a psychologist named Michelle Crossley. I don't know anything about her, so I'm not, I don't know anything about this lady, but she writes... Depression frequently stems from an incoherent story, an inadequate narrative account of oneself, or a life story gone awry. Sometimes our sadness stems from an incoherent story, an inadequate narrative, a life story that seems to have gone awry. The story seems bad and we feel sad. Or, here's your $10 word for the day, the story seems bad and so we feel maudlin, M-A-U-D-L-I-N, maudlin. No. Trying to impress you. We also need to bring that word back. But why am I bringing that word in here right now? Because that word comes from our text. The word is sometimes just used as a synonym for sad, but it means more sentimental or it means overly and excessively and expressively and tearfully sad. Why does maudlin mean that? Well, because our English word maudlin comes from the Greek word 
Magdalene, as in Mary Magdalene, the center of our story today. We said last week that many assume that Mary Magdalene is the unnamed woman of Luke 7 who, who weeps and who wets Christ's feet with her tears. So most root our term today in that text. Though remember, we have no reason to believe that that was Mary Magdalene. But our text does open with Mary Magdalene weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look in to the tomb. Mary Magdalene is maudlin. Why? That's what we want to consider this morning. Why is she sad? And what can we learn from that about why we may be sad? But even more important, we want to consider what is the solution to her sadness. We are going to witness a great change in our text, a great transformation. And isn't that what we all want? Isn't that what we all wonder sometimes if it's even possible? Change for the better. Can we change and how can we change? Well, the story of Mary is here in part to show us how. And in showing us how, the story of Mary is here to give you further reason to believe in the truth of the story of the resurrection of the Christ and to find great happiness in the truth of the story of the resurrection of the Christ. So we're going to work toward that goal in three steps. We're going to move through our story from grief to grace to go. Grief, grace, go. Let's add a little there and, and flesh that out a bit. Let's work through three pairs. I want us to see the relationship between grief and unbelief, the solution of grace and change, and then the response of go and tell. So grief, grace, go. Let's go. Let's read our story. John Chapter 20, I will read for you verses 11 through 18. Please pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, uh, Rabboni, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's begin first with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the time that we have already had together. Thank you for the gift of congregational singing, how edifying and encouraging it is to hear brothers and sisters in Christ, some even in the midst of sadness, proclaiming your glory and, and your grace in song. Father, thank you for your word and for Psalm 66 and for the gift of prayer that you are attentive 
to our prayers and, and to our needs. Father, that you hear us and that you know us and that you love us. Father, thank you for your living and active word. Father, there's nothing more important that we could be doing right now than hearing from you through your word. Many of us enter into this place today with, with much sadness for many different reasons. Father, we want to see how Christ is the solution to all things, even our, our sad things. Father, we want to see how the resurrection of Jesus Christ truly does and can change everything. And Father, we want you to encourage and comfort and help us, uh, Father, through the preaching and teaching of the word of the risen Jesus Christ. So Father, please help us. Please help me as I preach. Please, please help each and every one of us as we hear and, and take to heart your word. We pray that you would be honored and that we would be edified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, grief and unbelief. Now, hold on, I, I want to be careful. Don't write me off immediately. Not all grief is necessarily a result of unbelief, and not all unbelief is the same. There are different types and degrees of both grief and unbelief. But I am using and relating the terms grief and unbelief, first of all, let's be honest, because they rhyme, and I am a child, and I find rhyme sublime and alliteration amusing. But, in all seriousness, I am also connected to mention of this Mary in John. But we know from Luke that she was a follower of Jesus and that she had been healed by Jesus, set free from the oppressive bondage and influence of evil spiritual forces. And so this woman clearly loved Jesus. We love because God first loved us. Mary loves because Christ first loved her. As we began to see on Thursday night with the glorious Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, we bless God because He has first blessed us. What He has so freely and unbelievably done for us results in a certain sort of response a response of glad praise and grateful love and faithful devotion. Let's be clear at the beginning. Mary loves and is devoted to Christ. And so she is there at the cross. She witnesses the death of the Lord she loves. And now here on the first day of the week, she is there at the tomb. She witnesses, well, she doesn't quite yet know what she witnesses. So back in verse 1, she comes early to Christ's tomb. Remember that she comes with a group of women. They see that the tomb, uh, the stone has been rolled away. The other women stay. Mary takes off and runs to tell Peter and John. Peter and John race to the tomb. John wins. They see the well-ordered grave clothes left behind in the tomb. Remember Lazarus, when he is raised from the dead by Christ, he comes out all still wrapped up wearing his grave clothes, not Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. And we'll see in point two, this is something entirely different. This is something entirely new. This is change, transformation. But John and Peter see the clothes. John understands and believes. It seems that Peter is still trying to figure things out, and then we left them returning home. Now we return to Mary. Again, the exact sequence of events can't be sure. Best guess, she runs to them. They take off and run to the tomb. Well, she's tired. She's already run one time. So she heads back to the tomb after them, but slower than them. 
And so when she gets there, they're already gone. No one is at the tomb when Mary returns. Now we're ready for verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look in to the tomb. So Mary is maudlin, understandably so. And the weep word there is a strong word. It's more than just a cry. It's a wail word. It's a cry aloud. It's, it's audible grief. This is serious sorrow. I love the author, the author, Leif Inger. I am due to reread his piece like a river shortly, and he has a new book coming out this spring. I'm very excited. And in Peace Like a River, he writes of a grief so hard, I could actually hear it inside, scraping at the lining of my stomach, an audible ache, dredging with hooks as rivers are dredged when someone's been missing too long. It's a great line. Grief is hard. Sometimes it's so hard that you can hear it. It's an audible ache. Sometimes it's so hard that you can feel it scraping around in your gut. Grief. What is grief? Well, it's a response, again, of varying types and degrees. There are different kinds. But it is a response to loss. Something, or especially someone, that is valued and loved is lost, and grief is the response. And the greatest of griefs is generally in response to the greatest of loss, death. And that's why Mary is grieving. That's why Mary is weeping. The one whom she most loves has died. She has lost him. And so we get her grief. It's understandable. Part of it is even commendable. There can be no doubt that she loves the Lord dearly. Grief, rightly understood, is a right response to the loss of one we love. I'm fascinated and still thinking through, uh, I'm fascinated by the, the juxtaposition of two responses of Paul to death that can at first seem contradictory. We know well, we just don't believe well, Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Again, we in no way live our lives as if to die is gain. We give that lip service, but not life service. Paul goes on in verse 23, my desire is to depart. What does he mean there? My desire is to die. That's literally what he's saying. Why? For to depart is to be with Christ. More on that later. But then there's also the lesser known Philippians 2, 27. In verse 25, Paul talks about Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Philippians 2.27. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Sorrow is grief. Paul says he would have had sorrow upon sorrow, great grief, had he lost his fellow and friend to death. And so good grief can be the right response to loss. It also seems from there, that there may be a difference in how we should look at our own death and how we should look at the death of others. I need to think on that a little bit more. But, but yes, there's, there's a tension here. To depart is to be with Christ, and that is far better. Uh, grief, loss, death is an enemy, and it is to be grieved and mourned. Those things can go together. Back to Mary. So we understand her grief. Now look at verse 12. And she saw two angels in white, 
sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, I have so many questions about that. We know from Matthew that the angels were there earlier, and they spoke to the other women. Peter and John arrive, no angels. The angels are gone. Mary returns, angels are back. I don't know why. I think it seems to me that the angels are sent as a, as a particular kindness to the women. They're the ones that are at the cross. They're the ones that are first at the tomb. Here's a kindness and revelation and, and messengers of this good news uh, given exclusively to the women. Hebrews 1.14, angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So Mary, by the grace of God, is one who inherits salvation. And so here are these two angels, messengers, ministers, sent to serve for her sake. Now here's where it gets interesting. How do they serve her? Speculation first. Some have argued that John's emphasis on the placement of the angels is important, right? Why does he uh, emphasize where they're sitting, the head and the foot of where the body was? Um, well, white, symbolic of holiness. They're described symbolic of glory. And where they are sitting, some read this as a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, the special place of God's presence. Remember, on the top of the Ark, or at the head and the feet of the lid, there sit two cherubim, angel-like the cherubim are interesting. We're not exactly sure what they are, but angel-like beings. And we're, we're first introduced to them in Genesis 3, after the fall, after the separation of sin, after the man and the woman are cast out of the presence of God, a cherub guards the garden, guards the place of display of the holiness and the glory of the present God. Something big and new is happening. But notice this. Mary is so distracted of her despair. You may have experienced this, but in, in the grip of grief at times, it's, it's as if you can, see, you can see nothing else. You can get so consumed by the grief, so compulsively obsessed with it and focused on it that, that nothing else gets in. For Mary, not even angels get in. Not even messengers of God's presence and God's glory. And so verse... 13, look at it. They say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So here's where we can move from speculation to information. Here's why I think verses 13, 14, and 15 are here. The angels know why Mary is weeping. They are not asking for the benefit of their illumination, but I believe they are asking for the benefit of both Mary's edification and correction. This is kind correction. Hendrickson calls their question a tenderly phrased expression of disapproval. There is gentle good seeking here. There is reproof. And this is important these days. For increasingly, it seems that the only allowed response to sin and suffering in the life of another is comfort, soothing, consoling, empathy. And that is so important. We all so desperately need comfort 
and encouragement. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. 2 Corinthians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us. Comfort is good, necessary, needed. But I've explained before how what the Bible means by comfort may be a little bit different than what we mean by comfort. And this is for me. I need to know this because this second idea of comfort, our idea of it, is one of my idols. I want ease. Sometimes I demand it. Difficulty and difficult people drive me crazy. Uh, DBD is one of our family sayings. I say it all the time. DBD. Don't be difficult. Don't be difficult. That's kind of one of the surest things. That's from me. Uh, give me comfort. Give me comfort like my down comforter. Soft. Plushy, comfortable. That's what I sinfully often demand life to be like. That's what we often read into the word comfort in Scripture. That's not what the word comfort in Scripture means. The encourage in 1 Thessalonians is the same word as the comfort in 2 Corinthians. Comfort in Latin, cum means with, and fortis means strength, fortress, fortify. Comfort or a comforter is one who is with you to fortify you, to strengthen you, one who comes alongside you to help you to bear up under and, and face whatever it is that you are facing and all the difficulties of this difficult life. We, listen, we do need the first kind of comfort. But if that is the only response that is allowed to sin and suffering, then we do ourselves uh, a great disservice. Sometimes we also need exhortation. Sometimes we also need correction. I don't just need to be told that everything will be all right. It will, and that is my great hope, but sometimes I also need to be told that I am not all right and that I am wrong, that I have, or I'm, uh, that I have done or that I am thinking something wrong. I need people who love me enough to sometimes exhort me to get over myself and to correct me when I'm wrong or in sin. I need men like Ed and like Mike and like my brothers and my dad to sometimes say, ah, nope, sorry, that's, you're wrong. I need you to fix that. I need you to repent of that. And I believe that the angels are lovingly doing that for Mary. Correction done rightly is an expression of love and care and concern. But even more importantly than the angels doing that for Mary, I think that's what Jesus is doing. Look at verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. There is great insight there into the reason for much of our grief. First, I wonder why Mary turned around. I don't know. doesn't tell us. She's, she's stooping. She's looking into the tomb. She's seeing angels. She's unimpressed by angels. Maybe they disappear. Maybe they in some way respond to the approach of their living Lord. Maybe their eyes shift. Maybe they bow down. I, I don't know. Maybe Mary hears Christ's approach, but she turns and she sees, and yet she does not see. Verse 15, Jesus, whom she does not recognize, said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, 
Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. First off, I was going to talk about Jesus and the gardener and in the garden, but I thought that was a big deal. I'm not convinced that's a big deal right now, so I'm setting that aside. I keep going back and forth on the significance of him supposing, uh, her supposing him to be the gardener. Ah, I just don't know what to do with it. Let's focus on the main thing. Twice, I want you to notice twice Mary is asked the same question. By the angels, by the risen Christ himself, why are you weeping? And that is a great question for you. And it's a great question for me. Why are you weeping? Our first response to that question is to be bewildered and offended by the question. What? What do you mean? For all kinds of reasons. Because of difficulty and doubt and despair. Why would I not be weeping? But surely we cannot call angels and Christ himself miserable comforters. Surely they know what they are doing. Surely they are kind in all that they do. Of course her grief is absolutely understandable. But that doesn't make it correct. Here's the point. Here's where I think the angels and Christ are lovingly pointing Mary. Is there anything more out of place than grief at the resurrection of the Christ? Is there anything more out of place than weeping and grief and sorrow at the defeat of death by life? Why is Mary sad? Her grief is a response to her loss. More accurately, her grief is a response to her perception of loss. Why is Mary ultimately sad? It's verse 14 is why. It's because she did not know that it was Jesus. Go back to verse 9. It's for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. At least in part, her grief is due to unbelief. And at least in part, some or much of our grief is due to unbelief of varying kinds and degrees. Our failure to see and believe what God's word clearly tells us is true. A failure to trust and believe what God's word clearly tells us is true when our eyes and our feels are telling us otherwise. One of the conclusions that J.C. Ryle draws from these verses is that the fears and sorrows of believers are often quite needless. He's right. It doesn't mean we don't minimize those things. It doesn't mean those things aren't hard. But in light of the reality, in light of what is most true, they are often quite needless. Mary is grieving because she believes that she has lost her Lord. She is wrong. Mary is believing, is grieving because she is believing that her Lord is absent when her Lord is standing right there in front of her. And first of all, again, the fact that she's grieving because she's perceiving that Christ is absent is good. Her perception is wrong, but the grief is good. We're not trying to completely condemn Mary. We understand that there are parts of her grief that are commendable. Listen, the absence of Christ should be the cause of great distress and sorrow to our souls. John Gill says, because of, because of the, the beauty and the excellency of the person of Christ, because of how dear and near 
He is in relationship to us and with us uh, because the nature of His presence is preferable to everything else. We should not be able to be content and at peace when we have lost sight of Christ. We should seek after Him with all that we are in the Word when we have lost sight of Christ. But just like Mary, for the Christian, the absence of the Christ is always only perceived absence. She thinks he is absent when he is very much present. You might think he is absent when in Christ he is very much and always present. How often are we perceiving and believing and grieving and living in light of the fact that we think that Christ is, ab is absent and that God is not good and that he is not for us? How often are we anxious when we actually have no true reason for anxiety, if and only if the resurrection is true. If Christ is the risen, victorious Lord who is with us always to the end of the age, who will never leave us nor forsake us, who will come to us to take us to himself, who has promised to work all things together for our ultimate and eternal good. From the perspective of the resurrection, the questions of our text are posed to us again and again and again. Why are you weeping? Why, in all of your difficulty and doubt and despair, why are we still reading everything through the lens of death when life has already won? Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Why are you sad and what are you looking for that results in your sadness? Because you don't think you have it. Those are the questions. What are you really seeking after? Think about it. What is Mary really seeking after in our text? She's seeking a corpse when the living Lord stands before her. Is there any way you are seeking something that is no better than a corpse in comparison to the living Lord that stands before you? Is our grief in any way rooted in unbelief. Do you feel right now that the Lord is far from you? Good news. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Good news. There is grace. Point number two. Grace and change. I kept changing the wording of this point. I'm still not convinced. I couldn't decide. I thought about grace and life. I thought about grace and transformation. I thought about grace and adoption. It's difficult to choose in part because grace is so gloriously comprehensive. Grace is so much bigger and better than we think that it is. I'm going to keep plugging Bible study. Come Thursday at 7.30. Ephesians 1, 3-14 is just too good. You need it. I need it. And smack dab in the middle of one of the most ascendant sections of Scripture, one long sustained thought all about the praise due to the God who does all, the blessed God who blesses his people, grace sits right at the center of it. Verse 6, he adopted us to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches 
of his grace. Grace is everything. There is nothing you need to understand and appreciate more than the grace of God. And he has a riches of grace. What is grace? It's often defined as unmerited favor. No. Better than that. It's demerited favor. You didn't just not deserve the favor of God. You deserved the opposite. You deserved the judgment and the wrath of God. You deserved eternal separation from the very source of all that is good. Grace is God giving to you all that is good eternally when you deserved all that is bad eternally. Grace is the good God being perfectly good to you. Grace is the blessed God blessing you. Grace is God freely choosing to give you this great good even when you freely chose to reject this great good. Grace is everything. And what we're seeing here with Mary in narrative is explained for us in great detail with Paul in worshipful explanation. Come to Bible study. Now look at what grace does for Mary. Verse 16. This has to be like in the competition for sweetest verses in Scripture. It's one of the, it's one of the best ones. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, I can't even do it. I can't even say the word. Right? I can't do it right. Mary. Just imagine that word. Imagine the, the power of that word. She, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's just beautiful. It's intimate. It's personal. It's kind. It's compassionate. It's, it's powerful. I don't know which aspect to more emphasize, the, the compassion or the power. We need both of them. Mary is understandably but terribly wrong. I wouldn't have done any better. You wouldn't have done any better. She was a follower of Jesus like the twelve. So I assume she would have been taught clearly of Christ's coming, death, and resurrection like the twelve. But like the twelve, she did not understand. She did not believe. She was looking for the body of the one who was the resurrection and the life. She was looking for the body of the one who clearly told her that he would be resurrected back to life. She didn't understand. She despaired. She didn't fully believe. And Christ comes to her. And he comes for her. And this is precisely the point. This is precisely what grace does. It comes to us and for us when we are at our lowest and at our worst. Romans 5, it's why we were still weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. We're given four descriptions of who we are in Romans 5. Weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies of God. It was why we were all of that that Christ died for us. To show God's love for us. To make us justified, saved, reconciled. Listen, we're very tempted in our therapeutic age to do with ourselves what it's not hard to do with Mary here. We want to qualify and excuse and say that things aren't so bad and that we're not so bad. We want to name what is often just sin and unbelief with all kinds of titles and conditions and other things and kind of avoid the true and utter depravity of our hearts that Scripture so clearly reveals. Listen, that's so dangerous because that's the whole point and the whole beauty of grace. Christ comes to her and he gets her when she doesn't get it. 
Christ comes to us and he gets us when we don't get it. It is our utter depravity. It is our helplessness and our hopelessness in sin that makes God's grace in Christ so wonderfully amazing. Don't rename the thing for which Christ comes to solve something else. Don't minimize the grace of God by trying to minimize and rename our sin and unbelief. It's the depths of our sin that makes the heights of God's grace so good. Don't also miss that Mary sees Jesus and nothing happens. But then Mary hears Jesus. She hears the word of Jesus and everything changes. One word transforms her whole world. There's the power combined with the compassion. Remember that, that admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Christ? The most powerful one is the most compassionate one. The most transcendent one is the most imminent and near one. How much we see that in this one word, Mary. Intimacy, personal, love, power. And she hears it. And she finally understands. Listen, this is John chapter 10. Who is this Jesus? John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Why does he lay down his life for the sheep? Because of unbelief. The sin. God is. God speaks clearly in creation, in conscience, in his word. You have no excuse. Everybody knows him. And he is glorious. And he is good. And it is clear. The proof is everywhere. And we reject it. We trade the truth of God for a lie. Unbelief. Sin. And when we refuse to believe the God of life, we reject the God of life, we separate ourselves from the God of life, and we get death. That's why Christ lays down his life for the sheep. Because of the death that we deserve. He does it for our unbelief. He does it, John 10.10, 10, that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that life requires his death in our place. To forgive us, restore us, and reconcile us to the God of life. That's grace. And Jesus says in 10.14, I am the good shepherd. Here it is. I know my own, and my own know me. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Verse 4, he had said, they follow, for they know his voice. Mary hears the voice of her good shepherd who has lived, died, and risen again for her. And she knows, and she follows, and she loves, and she lives. 1028, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Listen, that changes everything. The revelation of the risen Christ to an individual is transformation. It's life-saving. It's life-giving. Mary moves from grief to gladness, and it's all because of grace. Mary is maudlin no more because she finally understands and believes that Jesus is alive. The Lord she loves has risen, and in rising from the grave, he has defeated death itself. And if grief is the response to loss, and the greatest grief uh, the is the response to the greatest loss, death then the resurrection of Christ must transform even how 
we grieve. Everything has changed with the resurrection. The resurrection is, is the down payment of what is to come for you. And not just for you, but for the whole of creation. Behold, I am making all things new. Are some of the last and best words of the Bible. The ending is good. Revelation 21, 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither, there, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more for the former things have passed away. That's what's coming. That's the end. That's what's guaranteed by the resurrection. All the loss, all the reasons for which we grieve, gone. Death itself, the foundation of all those reasons, no more because of the resurrection of the Christ who is life. Knowing that and believing that and living in light of that can change everything. Of course, there will still be things that are bad in this life. Of course, we will still have reason to be sad. The end is not yet. Life is just, life is hard. And we're all a little bit crazy. This is, we're all a little bit crazy. There's going to be darkness and difficulty. There's going to be suffering and sadness. And there is a way to still correctly grieve those things. But we do not grieve them in the same way as we did. And we do not grieve them in the same way as others do. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Why wouldn't we grieve the same way as everyone else? Verse 14 For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. You see the resurrection connection? We do not grieve the same way because we believe that Jesus died and rose Again, it doesn't mean we don't grieve, but it does mean that our grief is transformed. There is such a thing as believing, hopeful grief, a grief that clings to the risen Christ and the end that is guaranteed by his resurrection, no matter the circumstances we face right now. Look at verse 17. I'll move quickly through these last two. Don't worry, point three will be just me saying, oh, we'll do it next week, so don't worry about it. Look at verse 17. I didn't give verse 17 much time because some have called it one of the most difficult texts in all of Scripture. We won't dive into the depths of it. I think it's not as difficult as it first appears. 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Stop. Part of the problem, if you're reading in the King James, has been the translation it gives to this, where Jesus says, Touch me not. But in just ten verses... Jesus is going to specifically tell Thomas to touch him. Right, so is Jesus just anti-woman here, right? The men can touch him, but not the women. Is he like a child who finds herself in a family of seven who almost cannot help but sometimes cry out, don't touch me, as it happens sometimes. No, that's, that's not what's happening here. That's why the cling translation is better and more clear. I think Christ is still kindly correcting and teaching Mary. It's more change. It's changed for the better. 
It makes sense that after losing the physical presence of Jesus, and after having the physical presence of Jesus restored, that Mary would be glad and desirous to hold on to the physical presence of Jesus. But no, he has not yet ascended to the Father. And when he does, when he departs, it will actually be better for Mary. We still have a hard time believing that. But it's what he himself says. I think this is just chapter 16, verse 7. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 14.16 I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper or another comforter to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth. You know him. For he dwells with you and he will be in you. You see, Mary doesn't need to cling to Christ right now because how he relates to her is about to change for the better. She wants communion and relationship with Christ. Of course, that's, that's good. And she will have it always by and through the Spirit who will be with her and in her. And the ascended Christ and the sent Spirit means that all of us can cling to Christ. That all of us can have this same communion and experience of the nearness of the risen Christ. Through the living and active word that not only reveals Christ to us, but by the Spirit relates Him to us. In Christ, by grace, you have the Holy Spirit in you, and He is the Comforter. And are we looking for comfort somewhere else outside, or are we looking for the comfort in that Holy Spirit who dwells within us and encourages and strengthens by pointing us to Christ and teaching us Christ and relating Christ to us? And this is, this is such a grace, the Spirit with us and in us, God Himself dwelling with us and in us. This gives us an infinitely and eternally powerful resource for facing the trials and troubles of this difficult life and facing them with patient, settled gladness and peace and hope because Christ is risen from the dead. Pay attention when we sing our closing song. Man may trouble and distress me, twill but drive me to thy breast. Life with trials hard may press me, heaven will bring me sweeter rest. Here it is. Oh, tis not in grief to harm me. Oh, well, that's a wonderful line. I want that line to be true. It, it, it's not even possible in Christ for grief to harm you while thy love is left to me. And in Christ, because of the resurrection, his love is always left to you. It is always there for you. Grief cannot harm you because of grace and because of Christ. Point number three, it's go until next week. It's the same thing. So I'm just cheating. Next week we'll read Jesus say, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So we'll tackle this then. But first, do see that the risen Christ sends Mary to the apostles. This is where she gets the name. She's often referred to as the apostle to the apostles. Right? Apostle just means sent one. She's first sent to them. Mary is sent, and so are you. Second half of 17. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. 
and that he had said these things to her. Again, there's just too much there. If we already pay much attention to the death and little attention to the resurrection of Christ, we pay even less attention to the ascension of Christ. Pay more attention to the ascension. Christ is risen and ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. He has all authority. He is always interceding for you. You have nothing to fear. Notice also the word that Christ applies to his disciples. He has loved them. He has washed their feet. He has taught them and been been with them. He has called them no longer servants, but friends. But this is the first time that he calls them brothers. My brothers. They just abandoned him. Peter just denied him. The risen Lord, victorious over death itself, comes personally first to Mary and then graciously calls these fickle and fearful men brothers. It's amazing. This is why I wanted to do adoption here. Christ is returning to my father and your father. If you are a brother of Christ, then you are a son of God. To my God and your God. We get to call out to God as father. We get to relate to God as father. More importantly, he relates to us as a perfect father does to his sons and daughters. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. But our focus here as we close is on Christ's call and command to Mary to go and tell to testify and witness to what she has seen and heard. I have seen the Lord. That is gospel. That is good news. The Lord that was just dead, the Lord that she last saw, beaten, humiliated, strung up, and hung up to die, she now sees alive, transformed, victorious. What if this man who claimed to be God really died and rose again? And what if he did it for the purpose of defeating death itself, the cause for grief? What if he did it to forgive sinners like us and to restore us to relationship with the God who is life and who is joy and who is pleasure forevermore? There is infinite joy to be found here. There's great joy for others to be found here. And there is great joy for you to be found here in telling others. To whom can you go And tell, I have seen the Lord. Come back next week. So Mary Magdalene, no longer maudlin. What a good story. What a happy story with a glad ending. What if this story is a a little microcosm, a, a little revelation of what is ultimately our story with this same movement from grace, from grief to grace, to go to the good end of all things new and eternal Why are you weeping? Why are you sad? What is the solution to your sadness? It is only the risen Christ. What can you do in the grip of grief? Three practical steps. Take these, keep them in mind, and I'll be done. Number one, what do you do in grief? Hey, don't trust your eyes. I think that's the first thing. Don't trust your eyes. Don't trust your heart. Don't trust your eyes. Don't trust your heart. Don't trust what you see and feel. Sometimes things are going to look and feel really bad. Learn and live 2 Corinthians 4, 18. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things 
that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Don't trust your eyes. Don't give first importance and most weight to what you can see and to what you feel. Give first importance and most weight to what you know is true. And that's number two. Don't trust your eyes. Don't trust your heart. Number two, do trust God's word and God's people. Do trust God's word and God's people. Sometimes when I can't see, I need someone who can see to come alongside and to see for me. Sometimes when what I feel is so terrible and wrong, I need God's word, sometimes ministered to me by God's people that tells me what is most true. What changed everything for Mary? Sight of Christ. How do we get a sight of Christ? Only by faith through the word of Christ. Get a sight, not of the grief of your circumstances, but of the glory of your Christ. I haven't used the Owen quote in a while, but this is on my mind constantly, and so I want it on yours as well. So I'll give it to you once, and then I'll leave it alone for a while. But Owen writes in, in the glory of Christ, he writes, Are beholding by faith things that are not seen. There's that verse, 2 Corinthians 4. Beholding things that are spiritual and eternal. Doing that will alienate all our afflictions. Doesn't that sound wonderful? It will make their burden light, and it will preserve our souls from fainting under them. Of these things, the glory of Christ is comprehensive of all. Listen to this. It is a woeful kind of life when men scramble for poor, perishing relief in their distress. This is the universal remedy, the only cure for all our diseases, a sight of the glory of Christ. That's such a great paragraph. Alienated afflictions, I want that. Burdens light, preserved soul, I want that. It really, I, I can tell you from experience, it is a miserable kind of life that seeks relief from trouble in the things of the world and that which perishes. It will provide you no relief. I have tried. Christ and Christ alone will do for you and be for you what you need. Trust God's word and get a sight of God's son in it. Number three, last one. Do seek to do good to and for someone else. Do seek to do good to and for someone else. Listen, self-focus is only bondage. The main thing our culture is telling you to do and pursue is only bondage. It is in self-forgetfulness that we find freedom. And that comes as we, by grace, see Christ and our focus shifts to him. And as it shifts to him, he will shift it also to his people as he sends us to speak good and to do good. You will see and feel less of the weight of your problems the more you see and feel the weight of the problems of others and seek to be a help and a service to them. There is relief from grief to be found in the pursuit of the good of others as Christ has so perfectly done for you. I have seen the Lord. And by the grace of God, I actually have. And has completely changed my life. And it continues to do so. I was a man of great sin and of great unbelief that God's grace is greater than all my sin. So I am telling you, and I want you to see him. I want you to find great relief from both your grief and unbelief. And you will find it nowhere but 
the risen Lord. Let's pray. Father, please help us. Please help us, like Mary, to believe. May the word that Christ spoke to her, the, the compassionate and powerful word of address, may you speak such a word to our hearts and minds right now. May you give us great comfort in your great compassion and love for us. Father, may you work great change in your powerful word to us. Father, there's much grief in this room for many different reasons. Father, we pray that you would provide relief from that grief. We pray that you would change circumstances. We pray that you would heal sicknesses. We pray that you would repair relationships. We pray that you would work on all of these circumstantial things. These things matter. But Father, most importantly, make us a people who can be at peace and who can rest and who can trust and who can find um, calm, glad joy in you no matter what it is that you ordain to come our way. Father, we want to be a people who find great hope in the resurrection of the risen Christ. And we want to be a people whose joy in the Lord is evident and clear and apparent. And we pray that you would use that to draw more and more people to you, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.